Well, I was going to say it's fall down here, but I realize aside from the other side of the world, it's fall everywhere, if I recall. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, which, which over, over, over there, I think it's uh, upside down fall, if I remember. I forget. But I, uh, my, my wife and my son are up, uh, it's like the day before elections. They're up block walking in Ohio. So they send me all these lovely pictures of like these, these red and yellow colored leaves. It's not all nice. Down here in Texas, we don't have that. It's either green, brown, or gone. There's no, uh, there's no variance. So I was wondering, do do you guys uh, in your neck of the woods? Do you have pretty fall colors? What uh, what do you and what do you do for that? Like, do lots of pumpkins? What's the fall decoration that's rolling in? Yeah, here in here in Seattle, we have uh, as you'd expect fall weather. It's cold. It's wet. There's red leaves everywhere. But it's actually really nice to have seasons. You know, I moved up from LA a year ago where it was either hot or not as hot. So it's nice to have a uh, proper seasons now how about yourself james the bay area oh no go ahead sorry Jump that's ahead. fine I, I feel like the bay area is the land of the perpetual almost nice mm. depends on what you like but it's always just a little too cold all year round and so the trees just don't know what to do with it oh yeah so i hear that in in, in some parts of the bay area they've actually genetically modified the trees to turn fall colors at like higher temperatures but that's probably not true now, this this raises another thing. I'm always envious of y'all who live over in the Bay Area. It's like you can always wear a light jacket. Like if that's just the thing that you feel like that day, put on a light jacket. It's fine. But wear you see, it. you must you must always wear a light jacket. Mm, I guess I, it's just a different. <laughs> you can always versus must. I agree. Yeah. Equivalent, <laughs> just subtly different. <laughs> subtly different. I vary the thickness of my hoodie based on the season. <laughs> that's mm, right. There you go. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it would be nice. Uh, I mean, I mean, do you, do you, do you concur with that, James? You have sort of like the, the one thing or well, what? We have some trees in, in our, I live in Palo Alto, so it's a slightly different than the, like Berkeley where Aroncia is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely get some, some of the trees turn colors and lose their leaves. Um, but it's, it's, I grew up in Nebraska and that was a much more intense fall oh. <laughs> and transition. Yeah. Nebraska where they have winter. As I recall, yes, that's, that's quite true. a thing. Yeah, huh? That's that's one thing I've never really experienced. We don't really have winter anywhere I've ever lived. Well, it's probably for the better. Well, uh, why don't we? We've got uh, we've got a couple of as you've heard already guests with us this week. Uh, why don't Why don't you guys introduce yourself? Why don't we go in the order that you answered the uh, the leaf question? If anyone remembers. sure, I guess that would be me first. So uh, my name's Unsi Fahri. I I run uh, R and D for Cloud Foundry. At- at Pivotal. Uh, my, my name is James Bear. I uh, work on the product side of Cloud Foundry. I've been working on the team a little over five years now, so I've been around for, for a while. Very good. So we uh, brought you characters on today because there's, you know, containers are a hot topic. It's a lot of good information out there. There's a lot of, frankly, bad information out there. So we thought it would be good to bring you on and just talk a little bit about, you know, no FUD, no, you know, BS. Let's just talk about containers and PCF and containers in general from from a couple of smart folks. So we're going to pepper you with a few things here today. So Sounds good. Yeah, so first off, I'll, I'll start with you, James. What the hell is a container and why do devs even care about them? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. I think there's been a lot of confusion about this because... Uh, one of the things that has happened, especially as, ever since uh, Docker really took off on popularity, things get uh, very confusing because people uh, first hear a lot. A lot of people first hear about containers with Docker, 
And uh, it turns out that with Cloud Foundry, we've been using containers um, well before there was Docker um, for several years. And really, it's, it's, a, it's about an isolation property in the Linux kernel is, is what, what we started with, um, with Cloud Foundry. And we realized early on is that uh, the, the first versions of isolation we, we had in, in Cloud Foundry um, were just using very simple isolation mechanisms, and they weren't very... Um, robust to something that an enterprise would would expect. Certainly not not as robust as the level of isolation you get in a complete virtual machine. And so, one of the the, the things we've done is uh, increase the levels of isolation by using more advanced features of Linux. And it, you get these great properties uh, compared to a virtual machine. These containers are really fast to start up, and re- really quickly um, you can get benefits out of them. And so they they feel faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's probably the, the biggest um, benefit to using these containers is you get this improved isolation uh, from, from really um, something that, should, that just would be something basic like using a separate Linux process or a separate Linux directory. You can actually make it such that those things don't see each other, um, and then you, but you get a better speed than you would if you used a complete uh, separate uh, virtual machine. Yeah, good. Auntie, do containers get you excited? Was this something that when this came out, did this light you up or was this just interesting to you? I think at some level, it, it, was, it was mostly an implementation detail around isolation. And then I think the brilliance of what, what you know, Docker ended up doing was making it fairly easy for folks to interact with these containers and uh, create them, tear them down. But most importantly, specify what goes in them. Mm-hmm. So like when I when I get what is a container, I like to think of it as three separate things. It's it's the isolation primitives that James is talking about, which like if you step back and think about it, that's it's like really impressive what the kernel folks have done, right? They've taken a, a sort of single tenant system and like wedged multi-tenancy into it and and made it possible to isolate processes across different axes. Um, within like the one kernel. So that's just bonkers that it works, but it works and it's been getting better and better and more advanced. So it's isolation um, and resource constraining. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of a description of what goes in the containers. Now you have your your box, you've put up the isolation walls. And when you put in the box, what's that file system? What, what, what are the files and the configurations that get mounted in? And the last thing is sort of this metadata of, okay, now, now that you have your box with stuff in it, what do you want to run? What do you want to do with your box? And how do you communicate what you run to other people? Mm. And, and what Docker really did, I think, was made it easy to create the container, easy to define what goes into it, and, and easy to sort of specify what you want to run. And that just makes it more, I think, accessible, especially primarily right on the local development environment. Um, the thing that I have a story. So when I was in, like, in grad school, I took a, a really silly little CS class about... Um, well, the details don't matter. But anyway, I just remember we spent the first two classes trying to like configure our workstations, right? And, like this is the bane right. of developers. Like everywhere, it's like, oh my god, I don't care about the configuration. I just want to get started from a known good point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think one thing that we've seen is uh, containers help make that uh, easier. And by containers, I specifically mean having like a, a community of those base images uh, right. uh, makes that easier. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, that, that's that's a weird thing. I I, uh, I forget when I started paying attention. This is back when I was an analyst. And like you initially you read about like containers and LXE and all this stuff. And from my perspective, uh, being a very uh, way above the value line type of person, 
uh, as it were. I'm just like, what is all this nonsense, right? Like about isolation and stuff like this is, I don't, I hate security. I don't want to read about security. And then somewhere in the last maybe two years, there's been this flip of like, no, no, it's not about security. It's about developer productivity. And it's like, uh, I don't know if there's other sort of historic things where something so annoying as, I mean, I guess all of computers, but like, you know, as, as weird as security isolation turns into this uh, almost, from my perspective, polar opposite thing. And it seems like that's the, uh, that's, that's the huge jump of reorientation that, that makes a lot more sense nowadays. And it is, I don't know why it seems weird to me, but it seems weird that this, uh, this uh, essentially security thing, like makes developers more productive, which I don't think most people would ever associate security and developer productivity together. But I guess I guess what it does is sort of frees up, uh, to put it in another wacky way, it allows developers to be a lot more sloppy and this therefore quick. They don't have to worry about their entire stack of things. But exactly. uh, it's, it, it is an odd, uh, you know, and it's also like, I always love it when all the uh, Solaris weirdos come out and they're like, we've had this forever, right? It's like, it's like when the mainframe people come out and tell you how they did DevOps in the 1910s or whatever. And so it's, it's, a good, uh, it's a good rebuke for like, you know, well, you did have that, but it didn't really like wrap around this usage of it or, or get so, so much widespread acceptance. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, given the, as it whether it's the uh, mainframe guys from the 1910s or uh, or Docker <laughs> today, I mean, so all, are all these container products using different engines? Like, is is there commonality here? I, mean, I guess James, start with you. When you look at these sort of components, yes, there's Rocket, there's Docker, there's all these other components, there's orchestration on top. When you look at these components, you know, where do you, where are you starting to see some standardization? Yeah, so that's a great question. In the when we first started working with the technology, we, we actually started in Cloud Foundry using uh, um, some very basic stuff that I, I referenced earlier. It was really primitive stuff like we we just make up a Linux uh, user on the fly and and using basic Linux user permissions and uh, file, file permissions on the file system. And we quickly found that that wasn't going to be good enough. So one of the other things that in, in addition to the security that you may not, you think like, oh, sure, it's the really... Um, paranoid enterprise security person, but there's also something that with multi-tenancy, this noisy neighbor property, that when you use the the better levels of Linux isolation in a container, now you have a lot more confidence that you can put mixed workloads um, from different tenants on the same place and they're not going to disrupt each other. And so we started looking at uh, other engines and one of them was called LXC. And we, we played around with it for a while. What we found was uh, this it wasn't giving us, it was too much of a black box. We couldn't quite understand what was happening under the hood. And so we evolved to, um, this was before Docker was even available. Um, we evolved and wrote our own uh, low-level tool called Warden. And, you know, time goes on and that was really successful for us because we could really go down deep and and control all the things we wanted to do to provide our our enterprise platform the properties we wanted, and then time went on and uh, Docker emerges and, and gets a lot of adoption. Uh, we saw other projects come out from Google. There was one called uh, Let Me Containerize That for You, and so we started seeing that okay, there's a lot of other stuff going on out here. And what I'm really pleased to say now is that we've actually gone far enough to where we actually share the same. Uh, Linux uh, container runtime that Docker has. It's called RunC. A whole bunch of uh, the industry got together for this thing called the um, Open Containers Project. 
And Docker took the core part of their insides of their of Docker Engine and made it uh, open source, um, and which it had been the entire time. At this time, they said the governance of this thing will be open source. We can all work and and move on this together. And so now all of Cloud Foundry's uh, um, container systems, whether it's the hosted versions we have, uh, Pivotal Web Services, or it's our um, enterprise product that we ship to customers, all of those customers have this uh, shared run C backplane now that does all of the really basic fundamental stuff like setting up the container file system, setting the Linux namespaces, setting up the C groups, all that stuff is shared now. So that's that's something we're really excited about. Mm -hmm. and so like, uh, I, I think, go back to your question, you know, what are, what are the shared components? I think it's just really important to always remember that at the end of the day, all the heavy lifting is being done by the kernel. The nice thing about something like Run C is that it's it's almost like the thinnest possible layer on top of that to provide a, a bit more of a user friendly API. Um, and so having you know Cloud Foundry and Docker and other things begin to shift and and run on top of Run C um, helps in many ways. And and the one that really I think is the most compelling to me is there's this shared shim layer, this shared code base that is doing a lot of the finicky kernel calls. Um, mm -hmm. That's where you're likely to, you know, mess up. That's where you're likely to like, you know, have a, a security vulnerability or an issue if you do that wrong. And, and what's nice is now there's this shared thing that has just a ton of eyeballs on it. And we all get to, to benefit from um, that shared community ownership of that, but then have our own opinions on top of it. And so Garden, for example, Garden Run C specifically gets to implement the Garden API, which is, uh, you know, we, we see it as like the orchestrator friendly API. It does just enough to support an orchestrator and like get out of the way. Um, Docker, on the other hand, right, they take Run C and then they just start to layer on more and more and more stuff to the point where it's this sort of massive thing that can do, you know, local workstation and multiple, you know, clusters. And it's just, which sounds good on paper, but like really it, it, become, it becomes a very leaky abstraction that's very hard for, um, you know, others to either wrap around or, or use or really trust as it sort of moves and breaks and evolves, um, frankly, too quickly. So what's nice is when, when Run C came out, we immediately jumped on that. We, we resisted like, switching Cloud Foundry to run on top of Docker for a long time because there wasn't that clear governance. There, there was a sense that, you know, what Docker is today and what Docker will be in the future, like, what, what is that? You know, there's not a lot of control, not a lot of stability or, or um, certainty there. But when Run C came out, we're like, oh, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly the right abstraction that we want to build on top of. And so, so we did. And not only did we, like, build on top of it, we then, like, shipped a, an update that, like, helped just move all of our customers over transparently um, from our old sort of homegrown uh, solution on top of Run C. So let's drill on it just a little more because I know hey maybe we're to blame for it sometimes but there gets to be confusion about PCF and Docker like do we support it are we somehow you know mortal enemies sworn to the death or you know are we, what are we trying to do to help customers with this stuff so I guess the first question even for you is sure does Cloud Foundry support Docker and yeah so so I go I go back to like what is a container right mm -hmm. um, and 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 that that mental model of uh, isolation container content, like the file system that gets mounted in, and then the metadata to run and launch stuff. So, you know, we we use the same Docker primitives to build the isolation that, that you know, run C, basically. Mm -hmm. And we uh, support 100% fetching 
Docker images, sort of the Docker tarball, as it were, um, and mounting it into the container. Like we don't mess with it. We just grab it using all of the same layer and caching technology that Docker's built. We, in fact, use the same libraries. This is all open source stuff, after all, mm-hmm. to mount your container in. And then we can fetch and translate as much of the Docker metadata as makes sense to run on a 12-factor platform um, to, to then enable you to just basically run your Docker images on the platform. So yeah, we, we support Docker. Um, <laughs> so if I've built some beautiful container and I love immutable infrastructure, and then, you know, James, for you. So if I take that Docker image and I point PCF at it and say, go pull this image and run it, do we break that thing apart and, and PCFitize it and kind of break the immutability up? Or, or is, do we just take that container and run it the same way Docker does? Yeah, it's, it's very, you're going back to NC's answer um, to provide a little bit more depth. Uh, the, the Cloud Foundry user is going to reference a, a Docker image to the platform. And what the platform does is hand, hands that off to this uh, you know, run C-based layer, and it's going to talk to the Docker registry, V2 API, pulling down the layers just like it would happen in the Docker engine, but in this case inside of a PCF platform. So all that stuff is exactly the same. The V2 registry is going to say, here's the list of layers that you need, and then the, the local um, uh, run C based uh, container runtime is going to say, "Well, these are the ones that I these are ones I already have, so I guess I won't download those." And then they get assembled and and started up into uh, the container aspects that the Nancy was talking about. So all that stuff is exactly the same. It's not different. Uh, we don't do something special um, for mm-hmm. retrieving a Docker image, putting it on disk, and, and starting it into a container. There are some additional things we do around that that supplement the experience. For example. We have this concept called application security groups. And what that allows us to do is to set up a default policy that um, Cloud Foundry administrators can assign to all the applications that run on the platform to whitelist specific network endpoints that you can get to inside of your container. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do some other things like log. This is a very kind of enterprise feature for enterprise security people. So you can log the first um, outbound packet that's from a TCP connection. So now, like if someone's doing a bunch of port scanning um, inside your inside your platform, you can figure out who is doing that because we can log that. So those are some of the things that we you know add in and around uh, the the Docker support that we have. But fundamentally, it's the same as running a, a, a Docker image of Docker engine. It's just that we have some extra things that that we do once you have that. Um, that the platform adds as advanced features. One one thing I might add to that, like the the things that we do on top, they're really to contextualize, right? They're to contextualize the application within the context of Cloud Foundry. And so the application security groups is a good example of that. Another example is that you get all of the environment variables that you may have defined in your Docker metadata. Remember, that's that third category of what a container is, that metadata, that's important. But you also get um, the environment variables that Cloud Foundry will typically provide. And those would not have been baked into your container. In fact, those are those are more dynamic, right? They would be the services that you've bound your application to um, at runtime. Uh, they would be information about um, your application within the context of a running Cloud Foundry cluster. And mm-hmm. so we do, you know, we do layer that, uh, that value on top um, and we manage it for you. And so... Uh, again, that it's important to have that mental model. The, the, the bits themselves, those are not changed. They come in and, and we just we just mount them directly. So so when when what uh, like that process that you guys just went through, what what do people call that? Because and and I ask that because uh, 
the uh, uh, the vocabulary of container fun, as far as I can tell, has two words: container and orchestration. But I imagine it's a lot more like uh, Baroque and, and uh, varied than that. But like, what's what's that one that the part of uh, initializing and setting up? Is there a name for that thing? Uh, I don't. Honestly, I don't, really don't think so. That's um, you know, it's creating the container. And by that I mean the isolation groups, and it's mounting the file system, mm-hmm. and then it's 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 launching uh, the processes within the correct context and configuration. It's just I mean, like I, your good old-fashioned booting up, as just as about. Yeah. That's that's right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So so then so then how does that? So we kind of went through that process. How does that compare with like what happens when you use a build pack? How how are those two things uh, different or similar? Uh, sure, James. Do you want to? Yeah, sure. I can, I can, sure. I can talk to, to that, and you can add some color. I mean, sure. to me, the the big difference with with build packs, and Nancy has this awesome haiku that that people reference a lot. It's here's my source code, run it on the cloud for me. I do not care how. And when you're using something like a build pack, as a developer that's you know, primarily doing something like Java or Node or Ruby, I actually don't have to think about how to construct my image. I can, you know, give my source code to the platform. So we call that CF push where my my application artifacts get, get handed to Cloud Foundry. And Cloud Foundry will go through this life cycle of inspecting that source code saying, oh, it looks like a Java application. I'm going to give you the latest secured version of the JVM and the latest secured version of Tomcat if you're running that kind of application. And it puts it all together for you. And you don't actually have to, to take responsibility for the any of the, the base level operating system components or the middleware runtime that that's on top of that. If you contrast that with the Docker, um, running a Docker image, that responsibility is put onto the developer. And that's that's something that might be surprising to developers that they really have to start thinking about, well, is the version of Bash that's in my container um, up to date and secured? Is the version of OpenSSL? Um, I actually don't normally pick that. That's something that the operating system middleware administrator does, but now I'm responsible since I'm producing this artifact. So that's really the big difference to me is, is the, do you want the extra levels of control and responsibility? Um, it's a trade-off like for the, for the additional control and the ability to specify everything. Um, I, now I also have the responsibility to, to maintain it and you get that with the Docker image and we support that completely. Mm. We find that a lot of developers really like the simplicity of just giving the platform their application and having the platform take responsibility for the assembling of that um, image. And they actually don't have to think about that too much because they can just say, here's my, here's my code. You create the image for me and you run it. And, and that's really the, it's a, it's a dramatic simple, um, simplification of the user experience because um, otherwise you have to think about all those lower layers. Yep. So, so conceptually, I like to think of it um, this way, right? With the with the build pack approach, um, we end up with three independent uh, sort of layers, conceptual layers. There's the operating system layer that has, you know, tar, gzip, and lib, open SSL stuff like that. Um, there's the source code layer, which we can then compile, and then there's the dependencies that the source code needs to pull in in order to run layer, right? And so the build pack is responsible for for managing those dependencies and compiling the source, and then the underlying uh, root file system, that operating source layer, that's something that you know we are responsible, Cloud Foundry is responsible for providing. Um, that multi-layered approach means that we can actually independently swap those layers out. So if there's a vulnerability in 
of OpenSSL, we just need to ship a new version of that lower, lower layer, that operating system layer, run a rolling deploy, automatically everything is patched with no downtime. No one has to wake up. No one has to do anything. It just works. Um, with, a, with a sort of Docker image approach where you choose to specify the contents of your container as basically a single tarball or a, a collection of you know, Docker layers, but that are then ultimately like sort of conjoined to form the image. Um, we don't have that much flexibility or really the ability to manage that as a platform. It's sort of a bit more of a free-for-all where the developer has opted for flexibility, but at the cost of taking over complete control of the whole enchilada, right? All of these layers. So now in that context, when there is a, when there is a vulnerability, you would have to sort of manage your whole fleet of Docker images and Docker image producing pipelines to make sure that they're up to date and have the latest security patches. Mm. So that's, I know that's I, one of the big differences. Yeah, I mean, I know when I came over here and, and started at Pivotal and started to really see what the platform was was really doing, I think that was the one that maybe is more underrated because people do think of containers as helping that upstream like, hey, let me just bundle my app and then it's the output of a CI process. And look, I want the control of the layers and, and don't, you know, don't tell me what to do. And so that can be very efficient for that initial push. But that operational component, when I have a thousand microservices out there with 5,000 containers and, you know, that dirty cow you know, vulnerability comes out or an issue comes out with Tomcat or something like that, can you actually re-push that many containers? You know, do you have the source? Do you have it all hooked up to CI? That seems like that's a much more complicated process than a restage operation in PCF. Right, and and for DockerCon in particular, you didn't even need to restage. It was literally an operator saying, "Okay, I have latest rootfs, deploy the platform," and it was done. Um, yeah. Wait, wait, let me let me ask kind of like a a, a slightly abstract question, which is, uh, uh, well, you know, I think even even our in our ancestry line of products, we used to word this use this word. People used to word this use this word fabric all the time to talk about like a. Uh, a layer of something, which I never quite understood back then, a, a layer of stuff you would run your stuff on to be mega abstract. And it, and it seems like th this is, there's yet again, this, this, uh, uh, thing going on where there's on the one side, I'm no one can see, but I'm holding my two fists up on the one side. There's sort of like managing by atomic unit, whether that's like a machine uh, a server, a VM, a container, whatever. But just just as 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 you guys were just out, outlining, you've got to go like monkey around with each of those little atomic units as needed. And then on the other side is yet to be new named new thing. I guess maybe we say platform, but there's like fabric where that the the haiku applies. And it seems like I mean I don't know. I mean first of all, like I I don't know if that idea that I'm kind of depicting is uh, is valid, but it seems like people always gravitate between those two things. And, and they really, developers at first seem to really like the atomic unit, but then sometimes they like go over to the fabric side of things and vice versa. But it seems like, we, like we've just gone over, you know, fabric is like build pack and atomic unit is like your container thing. And that seems to be like the eternal sort of, uh, I always forget if this is the appropriate definition of the world word, but dichotomy of packaging applications that, uh, that, that we, we, you know, run around in, in sort of an infinite loop. So I ended a question with a period there, but like, I mean, is that, is that, uh, is that stuff you guys think through? Like when you're, you're messing around with our platform? Cause it seems like those are the two poles of how you would manage and run your software that I've seen throughout my career. 
Yeah. So I think that, so, so first off, everyone likes choice, right? And so like with PCF, you can, you can choose like the fabric mode or you can bring your own image. That's fine. Right. Just to be clear. Um, what, what gets interesting though, is if you think more and more deeply about the fabric and these, these are things that we want to eventually get to, we don't quite have them um, like in line to, to start delivering on uh, ASAP, but you know, what can a platform do? if you've given it your source code and entrusted managing that source code. Like could, one could imagine a world in which you give us the source code and you give us you know, uh, uh, like, a, like a simple test or a smoke test to validate that the source code is working. And then we can take that, right? Compile it for you, get the dependencies for you, validate that those dependencies are um, uh, secure and up to date, run the test, see that it works, deploy your app, perhaps a canary deploy to see that it works. Um, and then if there is a vulnerability in the dependencies today, we require the um, uh, application developer to go and restage the application. And that's because, you know, when you change a dependency, that's a, that's a more tightly coupled piece of the application, and sometimes the application can break. So we, we, we defer to the developer to make sure that things work. Well, but if you, if you ship your source code with, with, a, with a test, um, then you could imagine the platform automatically taking care of that sort of thing for you, right? And so right. You, w when you take the fabric approach, you can start to really layer on a lot of value, a lot of automation, a lot of, um, you know, like hands off, don't worry about it, we've got it. Just by mm -hmm. enabling developers to more semantically describe their stuff. Like, here is my code, here is my test, take care of it for me, right? Um, so those, those are some of the, the places that we can imagine going to um, in the future. But again, back to going back to what I said for now, yeah, you're right, there's this two-world universe, right? It's like... Do I do I do I speak in terms of atoms or do I speak do I break the atom and speak in terms of its constituent pieces and again Cloud Foundry does support both. Mm -hmm. And 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 then, and then as an as another uh, uh, adjoining question there uh, like like do you. Uh... Do you, do you think do you think that when like developers and architects like are they, are they thinking through this idea of like uh like uh I don't know I want some amount of AI-ness in how my code is deployed like like are people interested in that kind of thing or, or are they kind of just like heads down on like the normal mode of like I got to have my APIs and my implementation or or are are there people who are sort of like coming up with the language to describe a lot of what you were just saying because that that seems to always be one of the the main problems with programming is in, until you until you actually just like the gang of four people did until you actually name these patterns that people are doing like they don't get widely used and so like like who's like what people are circling through like what does it mean to like tell the fabric these are my tests like i don't even know what you would call that kind of development sure sure uh Sorry, I just got a random text that distracted me. Um, uh, that, that's how I, development I, happens. Right, exactly. <laughs> Distraction. Um, I, I, uh, I think that there are examples of these sort of nouns emerge. Like, you know, what is a blue-green deploy? What is a canary deploy? These are, exactly, this is, that's this a good is, example. This, right. this is shared language. I look at Spinnaker as a, as a sort of an abstraction or a tool that like builds on top of these, uh, these ideas. And... and um, so I, I think there's 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 a lot of movement there. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I like that. That's that's because because it, it kind of uh, at least in my own written history of like containers where a security thing turns into developer productivity. It's similar where like another seemingly boring thing, <laughs> pipeline management, <laughs> like like turns into a it, it enables a whole different way of thinking about your application and the way you're doing it. So maybe there's there's that's that's an interesting area to go poke around in and see what uh, vocabulary people are using. Yeah, if we 
So, I mean, back to the security part of it, though, and we talk about fabrics and platforms. I mean, so I guess, James, where do we see were PCFs apps actually doing some good things on container security? Or in general, where's the industry getting better on container security, whether that's preventing things from breaking out or whether that's, you know, the security within things reaching the container? Are we doing better at that as an industry? And how's PCF trying to help? Well, sure. That's your, thanks for the question. I think that uh, one of the things that we had already talked about this move for Pivotal to adopt for on C. And one thing that really helped with that for us and it improved our, our container security story is that uh, because RunC has so many eyeballs on it and so much of the community behind it, as RunC was referencing, um, it already works really well with AppArmor, which is this um, basically uh, security subsystem that can be applied to Debian-based systems and works really well on uh, canonical Ubuntu, which is what uh, the operating system that, that we build on top of inside of Pivotal Cloud Foundry. And so that just increased our ability to um, secure these containers by using even more Linux primitives. Um, another thing that, that we were able to do in the last couple of months is to run our uh, Linux containers um, as unprivileged users by default, which is great. That means that um, even if you're able to, to get out of the container, there's still uh, some Linux primitives that are protecting um, you from being able to see things you're not supposed to be able to see. And so that, that is another example of, of container security. And then so you, you might ask yourself, well, every once in a while, there's still these zero days, uh, right? The, you, you mentioned dirty cows being one of them. And so with, with Pivotal, we've made it uh, pretty straightforward for um, these pipelines to always be taking in these um, security updates that they're coming directly in from the, the vendors, whether that's uh, from Canonical or something like um, RunC itself or you know, wherever these vulnerabilities are being found. And we test them and certify all those layers together and know that they work. And if it's a high CVE, we'll ship that within 48 to 72 hours to all of our customers and make it really straightforward for them to update those. So in the past, what we've seen is, you know, I, I guess Dirty Cow came out about a month ago, right? Um, I, I can't remember the exact date, but uh, I've been seeing these exploits of people sharing them on um, the social media platforms of, you know, with uh, some someone using Dirty Cow to get out of a Docker container. And here, here we are a month later um, from when the vulnerability was announced. And if you're a Pivotal customer, within two or three days of that vulnerability being announced, you can already be patched because we're, you know, have this really sophisticated um, update mechanism. And so I think that's that's one of the ways is just making security very straightforward and simple to keep up with is something that um, is a really big challenge if you take it all on yourself because we've seen just a lot of our customers struggle to stay up to date with patches, frankly. That's just that that mundane um, exercise of just always keeping up to date and trying to keep track of all your dependencies is really difficult to pull off. Yeah. I mean, Auntie, do you see that as well when we think about trying to bake security in versus asking the developer to necessarily harden and secure what they're deploying? The right, same exactly. I mean, you, you secure your code, of course, and do good practices. But when you are taking on more responsibility with a right. container, there's a risk there. So where do you see that value of platforms trying to give that to you and forces forcing you to bring it yourself? Well, that, that's exactly right. So what's what's super cool here is Dirty Cow is a great example of like uh, a vulnerability in like that OS layer, right, which we can patch for you. But if you look at what's happened over the last two or three years, um, as the container space has like really evolved rapidly, had more eyeballs on it, 
had more scrutiny around security. What we've been able to do is evolve the pa- the platform through point releases, where we've we've um, sort of changed our security stance, changed our opinions around security, made them more robust. So James mentioned App Armor. James mentioned um, you know user namespaces. That's what the unprivileged user thing is. Like we rolled that out um, without. Um, any developer having to worry about anything without any operator having to do anything except simply apply a rolling deploy. And so what you have is, is you know, like the, you know, uh, a platform that's aligning with industry standards around security and, and keeping up with them and providing that value transparently so that you don't have to think about it, right? We're just constantly improving our stance um, and, and, and shipping that transparently. And one of the ways that we can do that is because we are opinionated. Right? We're opinionated about how we structure the workloads that land on the platform. We're opinionated about how we run those workloads. And we know that we can turn those security features on and that it will be safe, that we won't break anything as we do it. Um, so so I, I, there's, there's a ton of value there, and no one has to think about it, right? It's just, it's just uh, you know, the Cloud, found, cloud Foundry and Pivotal working mm-hmm. hard to, to bring that value to the table. Mm, it's it's you. like it's like as as always my uh, my buddy security is the uh, is the fat boy scout on productivity. It's sort of like the uh, it's it's the the one constraint limiting your whole thing. And so if you can free that up, then you can uh, you know I don't know. I just like saying fat boy scout. But hopefully you can <laughs> you can speed things up and uh, not be limited by them. That that that, that would be nice. Uh, huh. So you know I I along those lines. So you you have like what. Uh, when 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 you, when you guys are, are talking with people and thinking through it, like if I am like, uh, there's never one. There's always like a pack of them. I don't know what the plural is. There's always like some pack of enterprise architects who are like planning out what to do over the next uh, six to fifteen years, six months to fifteen years, or something. I'm being a little hyperbolic there, but like what, like what, what's the kind of advice you would give them about like what to do with their portfolio? Like, should they just be like lifting, shifting everything over or like staging things out or doing nothing? Like what, what's kind of like your default advice other than just, you know, putting everything on Pivotal Cloud Foundry as soon as possible. But like, how do you, how do you sort of advise them to meter this stuff out and identify what works in their portfolio and, and uh, what projects to use and things like that? Um, so it, I think it's it's this big mixed bag, right? There's there's a lot of complexity there. There's a lot of different moving pieces. Um, I like I always like to frame it as a journey, right? Like you're you're on a journey towards a a more cloud cloud native world where you have that agility, you have that ability to put you know, more and more of your workloads on a platform where you don't have to care about stuff that's below the value line, mm-hmm. right? How, how, you, how you make progress on that journey, I mean, it's, it's a very rich and complicated question that really depends on the context and where the, the individual customer is at. Um, some things do make sense to lift and shift. Some yeah, things I mean, are James, like, what do you think of lifting and shifting then? Right. Yeah. Oh, please, well, keep going. Well, for, for, for me, lifting and shifting, um, you have to ask yourself why you're doing it. So um, if something's just in keep the lights on mode and it's not being actively developed, then, and it's actually running fine where it is, then, then you have to ask yourself, why, why would I lift and shift this right now? What value would I get out of doing that? Because when you lift and shift, you have to put forward some effort. And then the, then the question I'd have is the effort that the lift and shift effort um, applied to this particular spot going to be better than the things I'm actively investing in and maybe accelerating those. And so I think that's that's one obvious thing to to look at is um, if it's if it's running where it is and and it's okay and let's like one one benefit you could get from lifting and shifting for example is you know, we were just talking about you know keeping up to date with security patches maybe that's a problem that you you have and and 
so lifting and shifting a, a workload can make sense. But uh, in general, like when, when people come with this question to us, mm-hmm. we often recommend that they take something that they're actively investing in that's relatively high value for them and invest in that and, and get experience on the platform with that. And once they have experience with the platform, then they can more uh, make more informed choices about, oh, would this workload that's running over here make sense in the platform or not? Um, and that, that's how we kind of incrementally like enable the customers to make their you know their own choices but first we'd like we'd like to help them with something that they really care about we'll do it with them and kind of pair up with it and then uh and then that they're more more apt to be able to make that you know an mm-hmm. informed choice going forward yeah I, I mean i think i think i think to your to, to y'all's point like a lot of lift and shift stuff is like uh it's sort of like you're thinking about technology like it's a condiment like oh here's this new container liquid in a bottle and I'm just going to squirt it on my hot dog and it tastes better. But like, I think there's plenty of technologies that are like that, like that you can just condiment your way to awesomeness, but it doesn't really like, it's a lot of trouble to like, just squirt some, this stuff on your hot dog. Whereas really like you're talking more about like a, like a hamburger or a meatloaf or something. Like, it seems like it's a much more fundamental thing. And therefore you pick, you pick projects that are, uh, sort of, ongoing in their creation to start using it and learning about so you get the full benefits of everything instead of just sprinkling it on top well i want i want a hot dog right now so thank you (laughs) i'm getting hungry i I mean i was i think i want a burger actually (laughs) yeah i mean where's this condiment metaphor gonna go aiolis Mm -hmm. relishes it was gonna go uh somewhere exciting uh i mean so I i wanted to ask you that kind of building on that a little bit is you know we talk about security we talk about lift and shift but where are those difficult problems that we have to solve when working with containers? I'm thinking about things like persistent storage and networking. And yes, I could containerize my Oracle database, but why would I ever do that? Or, you know, can I really network well? Where are you still seeing, James, to start with, some of these container challenges that, hey, the industry is starting to solve, but companies who are using them should at least keep an eye out when they're trying to pick the workloads that they would containerize themselves versus where does PCF help with some of those challenges? Yeah, that, you've nailed the, the ones that, uh, that come top of mind for me. And persistence and networking are ones with, that I think, uh, you know, speaking specifically about Spivel Cloud Foundry, we're still exploring and investing and in, in enhancing our capabilities there. It's a lot easier to run a stateless uh, workload than it is to run a stateful one. There's just more to it. And so with persistence, we're actively working on um, being able to to mount shared volumes, something like an NFS store or something like that, into into your container. We've demoed that at CF Summit, and uh, we're hopefully going to be exposing that uh, into Pivotal Cloud Foundry customers relatively soon. And then in the networking space, uh, for a while, we've been working on this uh, kind of network address translation. Um, that's the, the kind of been the working model where um, everyone everyone's on this flat network, and we're using these application security groups I spoke of earlier to to kind of control. IP tables rules for, for inbound and outbound traffic. Um, in the, if you look at uh, where people want to go with networking, they want to be able to have um, you know, more explicit controls on the networking. So we're looking at something um, based off of a CNI, which is a, a container networking interface uh, that uh, is being used in the Mesos and Kubernetes communities uh, to um, hook into some of the other software-defined networking stacks, like whether that's something like NSX or um, Calico or any of these other um, SDN solutions out there. And what that allows us to do is is turn what has normally been a uh, mechanism where you have to turn to 
network administrator via filing a ticket or something like that. We can actually program the network with API calls. And so we're, we're kind of moving in that direction, um, both uh, this persistence and networking, to be able to make that automatable self-service by developers and with some kind of guardrails that have been set up by administrators. So those are the, the kind of the, the emerging areas that we're still you know, enhancing. And, uh, you know, that I mentioned before, as we enhance those things in our minor point releases, we just keep raising the waterline on, on the whole capabilities of the overall platform. And you'll be able to just, you know, take advantage of those as we deliver those. Yeah. I mean, honestly, where would I access stateful data in a PCF world? Do I call off to VMs elsewhere that are Bosch created or something? How, as a customer, how do I look at this environment and say, I've got some stateful data. It's not just, you know, elastic web apps. Where am I supposed to stick this stuff when I work with a container-based platform like PCF? So, so to today, is they're external to the system or, yeah, on a Bosch-managed virtual machine. Um, we're, we're slowly starting to evolve that story. So with the um, sort of the first step with the persistence offering is to say, well, today the only service you can bind is um, – uh, a service that I can connect to, like over TCP or UDP, right? Over 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 the network in that way. Um, and so it has to be like an external database, or it has to be, uh, you know, an external message bus. But the the next step is going to be that well, actually, we can begin to mount um, data into the container, so like with NFS or an NFS compatible um, uh, storage system. What that lets you do, it's it's less about now I can run my database on Cloud Foundry. There's a lot of just complexity to orchestrating that sort of thing correctly, managing backups, worrying about lifecycle events. And, you know, we're, we're still not at the point where we think that, well, I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we think that developers really should be worrying about that. We'd rather kind of continue our, our data service offering story on top of Bosch, where there's just a lot more control and stability. But um, what you can begin to do is to say things like, well, I have just a pile of data over here, you know, in my existing, you know, disk array how do i just get at it efficiently from my computer from my from my container and i don't you know i don't have the option of putting it all in a blob store i don't have the option of of of, of wrapping it in a shim i just want to get at it and have my containers process it we'll, we'll be able to start to have answers about that so that you can see data as just another service that you can bind to your container and it will just appear mm -hmm. um that's that's the that's the next step and what we're looking to do is just play that out with a few key customers see how that how they uh, how they experience that? See, so get some feedback on it, and decide whether or not that is a place to you know continue to invest or to pivot and look in a, in a different direction to bring this to the platform in a way that actually makes a lot of sense, given mm -hmm. given our emphasis and our workloads that we bring on the platform. Awesome. Well, I could I could probably ask you another four hours of questions, but let me wrap up with one that hopefully contextualizes some of this. So we could talk about containers and infrastructure forever. One concept that we talk about a lot at Pivotal with customers is this value line, the idea that, hey, things below that, like orchestration or cloud orchestration is super necessary, but not sufficient to be a platform. So, I mean, when we think about containers in our world, I mean, James, you're uh, remarkably well-read in the community about how we all think about this kind of stuff as well, Unsee as well as, how should customers be thinking about containers in their ecosystem? When, when do they say that this is a very important enabling technology, but I don't stop here? So, I mean, how do you help frame that as a technology that's a piece of something more? James, first. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I like to, to think about it in terms of just the developer productivity. 
it's you know containers aren't all that interesting unless they actually help you accomplish something. So if your if your business is trying to be competitive in a new area and and in order to do that you you need to evolve uh, with software really quickly to try out new ideas and see if they can come to market fast. Um, that's really what you should be focused on and pick, you know picking and choosing the technologies that are going to help you do that. And you know containers are are part of that story likely in some in some way shape or form, but exclusively just on containers as your um, primary noun that you're looking at, it's it's really hard to see how it ties back to you know enabling your your business to do more and more with software. Um, and so I, I I put the focus on that time to value metric and whatever you know technologies you can and we have strong opinions at Pivotal about you know and, and a pretty good track record of actually being able to de- demonstrably point to customers that we've done this with. And th- so that's that's why we don't you know, promote the, the container in and of itself as the end all be all, because you know, it's really about this you know, time to value for your business. And, um, the, you know, that's, that's where we want to focus. Great. Ansi, your thoughts on that, how you think about that? I, I, I agree. I think that that last phrase, that time to value, you know, containers are a tool. Uh, there's lots of tools out there. What, what's going to help your developers get, you know, all of the cruft out of the way and focus on, rapidly iterating what they deliver to your customers because it's only when you have that rapid iteration that you can course correct quickly and it's only if you can course correct quickly in response to feedback that you can build experiences that your customers are going to love that they're going to value and that's how you win in the software economy right so our containers are an important part of that yes they are but they don't they don't kind of come in like a, a magical you know condiment that makes all hot dogs incredibly delicious and compelling right um they're they're uh, they're part of a bigger recipe, and um, you have to you have to get the whole the whole package deal right. Yeah, it's not just sriracha sauce. No. <laughs> <laughs> which which, as we all know, makes everything more delicious. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I I think I think I think that's uh, that's great. That's actually a good overview, and and uh, I I appreciate the uh, uh, trying to come up with names for the nameless things there in the middle. But uh, yeah, if if people want to follow up with you guys, uh, like where where should they uh, where should they find you? You're, are you in the Twitter there? Yeah, I'm Jambay on Twitter, J A M B A Y. Yeah, and I'm Unsi Joe, O N S I J O E. And oh, that reminds me, I had a question for you specifically. So every time I see an email from you, I see this mm-hmm. flat field of sand and then a head. Like, what's the story mm-hmm. with that picture? <laughs> uh i i i decided to bury yeah nope i we were on the beach one day and i dug a hole about as deep as i am tall and then sat in it and then took that picture it was delightful it was yeah. very fun so what's yes. it like to be buried in sand up to your neck like is it distressing or relaxing like can you get out it's of there way too t- it's way too tempting to have like a really lame container joke in here so i'm gonna avoid it <laughs> it's it's uh it's it's actually really calming yeah it's just like there's this uniform pressure and it's warm and it's nice i i enjoyed it yeah yeah enjoyed it a lot it does it does gotten a lot of mileage out of that profile pic. yeah i'm breaking into a sweat thinking about it right now so we need to <laughs> wrap this up <laughs> well well on that note as always uh well thanks to the two guests and, and thanks for listening this has been pivotal conversations you can find us in our not so secret backend at soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations 
Or if you go to,、uh, I believe it's blog.pivotal.io/pivotalconversations. It's almost a tradition that I get that URL totally wrong, but it, you can just search around for Pivotal Conversations, and you'll find the extensive show notes and everything that we have. It's always great if you enjoyed this episode, or if you didn't enjoy it but still want to leave a favorable review. If you go into iTunes and leave a review, or if you're listening in Overcast, you can open it up and click on the little recommend thing.、Uh, and and with that, you know, it's always nice also to just to tell people、uh, that that you like it and tell us. It, it keeps us,、uh, you know, being dancing pickles and everything. And we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.